Hey friends, if you wish you weren't hearing an ad right now, then straight after you listen to this episode, head over to watchnebula.com slash not overthinking with a little hyphen thing in between the not and the overthinking. So watchnebula.com slash not dash overthinking. Through Nebula, you'll firstly get access to all of our podcast episodes ad-free. Secondly, you'll see exclusive content from me and a load of other educational-ish creators. And thirdly, it directly supports this podcast. So you'll incentivize me and Tame to record more episodes. My name is Ali. I'm a doctor and YouTuber. I'm Taymor. I'm a data scientist and writer. And you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity, and the human condition. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Not Overthinking. Taymor, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, we're joined this week by a special guest. This is a return guest. I think our only ever return guest on the podcast. Yeah, he's the only one who's come back. Yeah. Uh, it's Mac. Do you want to say hi? Hi there. Uh, delighted to be back again. Cool. Um, Mac and I are actually off to the Dominican Republic tomorrow in about, I don't know, seven hours or something. Uh, so we're having a little sleepover before then, and we're recording a podcast. Great. Uh, before we get started into this episode, uh, this episode is very kindly brought to you by Brilliant. Tamor, what is Brilliant? <coughs> no, can you do it? <laughs> <laughs> no, you can do it. I did it last time. Um, and it's like a math thing, and you're like a math guy, so come on. All right, brilliant is the best way to teach yourself maths or computer science, or I think maybe even physics. I think they have some physics stuff. Uh, yeah, how much does it cost? I can't remember. I can't remember how much it costs. But if you go on brilliant.org forward slash not overthinking, you get, I think the first 50 people or something. What's the deal? First 200 people. Ah, the first 200 people get what? 20% off the annual premium subscription. You get 20% off the annual premium subscription. So it's, you know, it's pretty good price. You get to learn some maths. And it's actually, it, genuinely, I'm not taking the piss here. It's a, it's a, it's a good way to learn maths. Maths intuition. You know, why like why is it a maths. good way to learn maths intuition? It's not like the school stuff. You know, school is mostly about learning methods and, and things like that. This is really about understanding. Um, I'd recommend it. Nice. So head over to brilliant.org forward slash not overthinking. You get to learn maths, science, and computer science. And you get to support this podcast as well. And we really do need your support. support. Um, anyway, what are we talking about today? You apparently read a book. I read a book. Or rather, I listened to a book called The Psychology of Money. And money is one of my favorite topics. Um, and so I thought I'd read a book about the psychology of it. And I thought we'd talk through the book and just do a general book discussion. Cool. Let's do it. Mac, does that sound reasonable? Good. Okay. Fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, The Psychology of Money. This is basically a book by a chap called Morgan Housel. Do you know who Morgan Housel is? You can lean in when you need to talk. <laughs> I'm just enjoying the yeah. <laughs> Okay, cool. Do you know who Morgan Housel is? Yeah, yeah. I read his blog. What's his deal? I don't he's, know much about him. He's just like a financy type guy who has a blog about some things financy and some things not so financy. Yeah, he seems like a cool dude. I follow him on Twitter. Yeah, he's a pretty cool dude. Uh, this is an interesting book. So I am. So firstly, as I was listening to it, I took I took notes on stuff that particularly resonated with me. So I've got that open on one side of the screen, and on the other side of the screen, I have a book summary that was written by kscarrot dot com. Uh, both of those. Well, that one will be linked in the video description. And he or she has written a short summary which says, doing well with money has a little to do with how smart you are and more to do with your behavior around money. You don't have to be a STEM genius to be good with money. That's basically the whole vibe of the book. Sounds great. Great. So thank you for listening. And uh, <laughs> should we read out a review? No. So there's like lots and lots of chapters in this book. But that's kind of the main thing is that money is a lot more about behavior and a lot less about like numbers and learning maths and stuff. And that sort of thing. And one of the points that he makes is um, 
this, uh, for, so for example, there will never be a, sto- a story of a janitor outperforming the world's top scientists, surgeons, or software engineers. So why is it possible that the average Joe can outperform professionals in the money game? Because financial success is not a hard science. To an extent, financial outcomes, both successful and unsuccessful, are driven by luck, independent of intelligence and the effort of the investor, uh, and a large degree of kind of behavioral type stuff. So his first chapter is called um, No One is Crazy. And I thought this was interesting because, and, and one of the things I wrote down was no one is dumb. Every decision they make about money makes perfect sense to them. And that was actually, that's an idea that he reiterates throughout the book. And that is something that I think I need to kind of personally take away from this. Because as someone who thinks about money a reasonable amount, probably more so than the average Joe, uh, I think I was, I I think I err too much towards, okay, let's, let's rewind a bit. So essentially the distinction he draws is like there is the rational investor, someone who's very rational about money, i.e. sort of doing the calculations and treating money not as anything that has emotional value, but in a sort of purely rational way. And then there is the reasonable investor, so or the, or the reasonable person that thinks about money and recognizes the emotional baggage that money has associated with it and does reasonable things with it based on their prior experiences and stuff. So for example, when it comes to the decision of kind of should you buy or should you rent a house? Often, as you guys all know, renting a house can sometimes be more worthwhile because the opportunity cost of that money, if you were to put the deposit into the stock market, you'd make so many dividends and so on and so on. And if you go on causal.app, you'll find a model about buying versus renting a house. And so for the rational investor, it might be very, very rational to rent a house and then just put put the money in the stock market. But it's just not intuitively how people would think. People would intuitively think that if I'm renting a house, I'm throwing away money on rent. And therefore, people are, 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 would, would be inclined to buy a house. I think home ownership also is like a strong cultural force in, I think, certainly in the UK, I think in Germany as well. Yeah, I think cultural force aside, there's something to be said for the value in terms of having and owning a house as well, in terms of the satisfaction that gives you, which can't be captured necessarily in just the pure cost loss trade-off in terms of renting versus buying yes that is absolutely true and that is kind of a point that he makes he makes in the book so for example if, if we think of the scenario of let's say you have a sudden windfall and you win the lottery and you have the option of paying off your house's mortgage and the interest rate is fairly low like 1.5 percent or something like that a rational thing to do would be to not pay off your mortgage and to instead put that money in something like a stock market index fund that's going to return far more than 1.5 percent um however in that position a lot of people would pay off the house and in that position it is a reasonable thing to pay off the house because of the because of the fact that it helps you sleep at night sure i think this reminds me a little bit about the sort of psychology that goes into into tv show games like deal or no deal mm. where uh, a participant's kind of given an offer they 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 have a box of a certain value let's say ten thousand pounds um and there's a 50 cent chance they'll get another box of fifty thousand pounds and dealer comes in and offers them something below the expected value based on those two boxes they maybe offer twenty thousand pounds and what you see is that even though the offer is far below the expected value of trading people often take it because they want the kind of certainty that comes with the you know having some cash in the bank and i think that's similar to what you have in the mortgage case where people it's maybe not in their kind of overall interest in terms of maximizing expected value but they want to take the more secure offer because uh like a, a, a kind of cheesy way to sum it up is a, this Kanye West quote of, uh, what is it? It's uh, having money is not everything, not having it is. And I think a lot of people, their attitude to money is is it's built from wanting to avoid a situation of not having any money. And, and so it's mm. kind of shifted in that perspective. 
And whilst that might seem irrational from the perspective of trying to maximize overall value, it's not, it's not wrong. Exactly. Yeah. And that's kind of what, what sort of Morgan Housel is basically saying throughout the book. He's saying that people's experiences of money and the way they, they thought of money growing up. For example, all of us have grown up in an, in, in an era where we, ha- we, we didn't quite appreciate the, the impact of the 2008 financial crisis. And therefore, to us, obviously, all your money should be in stocks because obviously the stock market just keeps on going up. But for people who went through that, it's, you know, it's a bit of, it's, it's, it's a lot more of a, a thing, you know, like stock, stocks are very risky. Um, and one of the things that he says for is that, uh, well, one of the things he says in the book is that um, people are optimizing for whatever helps them sleep at night, and that is completely reasonable. And so after sort of laying out this sort of 15, 18 part argument about how we think about money, the final chapter is when he talks about his own like investment portfolio and the fact that he and his wife hold 20% of their holdings in, in cash just because it helps him sleep at night. And he doesn't do much individual stock picking again because it helps him sleep at night. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Chapter chapter one is called No One Is Crazy. Um, and the sort of summary of this chapter is that your personal experiences with money make up maybe 0.0000001% of what's happened in the world, but maybe 80% of how you think the world works. Um, and chapter number two. Oh, yeah. Uh, another interesting example I, I noted down in the first chapter is the example of people buying lottery tickets. And I thought the way he described the lottery ticket thing is interesting. So why do you, why do you think people, what's your, like, why would people buy lottery tickets? I actually feel quite strongly about this. I think all the kind of rational bros or like, you know, all the, all the, uh, the sort of science bros, rational bros or whatever, yeah. they sort of look down on people who buy lottery tickets because, oh man, it's, it's so stupid. Like if you do the maths, you're not, you know, the expected value is not positive. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I, I think when it comes to all of this stuff, the thing that people don't take into account is a, like the expected dollar value is not the same as the expected value to the individual. I think our, our sort of actual, you know, utility functions are not like one to one. Well, fine. That that was the wrong use of a technical term. <laughs> but they're they're not like the same as the as the dollar value. You know, I I, I probably, you know, if I I probably care much more about having a uh, million dollars than I do about having $10 million, right? I don't, I don't okay. care 10 times more about having is it, $10 million. Is that, is, is that not the opposite of the point you're trying to make? Sorry? Is no, it- no, no. So one part of the point I'm trying to make is that spending one pound on a lottery ticket is negligible. It's, you know, basically you can think about it as zero monetary cost a lot of the time because, yeah, it's, it's, it's it, you know, for someone who buys lottery tickets that that might not be a substantial enough amount of money for them to actually care about it and so it's not a case of like oh man you're losing loads of money it's a case of like something that's basically not costing me anything and has some potential monetary upside and that and that's just that's ignoring the non-monetary upside of just like the fun the thrill the excitement you know that kind of stuff so i have nothing against uh i mean yeah i'm I don't think gambling's great, but I have, you know, I think if, if you're happy to get on board the gambling train, I don't think there's anything wrong with um, buying lottery tickets. Okay. Uh, I'm going to read some, some bits out from the book here. Uh, it says, every financial decision a person makes, makes sense to them in that moment and checks the boxes they need to check. They tell themselves a story about what they're doing and why they're doing it. And that story has been shaped by their own unique experiences. Take a simple example, lottery tickets. Americans spend more on them than on movies, video games, music, sporting events, and books combined. And who buys them? Mostly poor people. The lowest income households in the US on average spend $412 a year on lotto tickets, 
really? four times the amount of those in the highest income groups. 40% of Americans cannot come up with $400 in an emergency, which is to say those buying $400 in lottery tickets are by and large the same people who say they couldn't come up with $400 in an emergency. They are literally blowing their safety nets on something with one in a million's chance of hitting it big. He says, that seems crazy to me. It probably even seems crazy to you, but I'm not in the lowest income group. You're likely not either. So it's hard for many of us to intuitively grasp the subconscious reasoning of low income lottery ticket buyers. But strain a little and you can imagine it going something like this. We live paycheck to paycheck and saving seems out of reach. Our prospects for much higher wages seem out of reach. We can't afford nice vacations, new cars, health insurance or homes in safe neighborhoods. We can't put our kids through college without crippling debt. Much of the stuff you people who read finance books either have now or have a good chance of getting, we don't. Buying a lottery ticket is the only time in our lives we can hold a tangible dream of getting the good stuff that you already have and take for granted. We are paying for a dream, and you may not understand that because you are already living a dream. That's why we buy more tickets than you do. You don't have to agree with this reasoning. Buying lots of tickets when you're broke is still kind of a bad idea, but I can, I can kind of understand why lots of ticket sales, sales persist. Um, and that idea, what you're doing seems crazy, but I kind of understand why you're doing it, uncovers the root of many of our financial decisions. So I thought that was like a nice way of, a nice way of putting it. Yeah, that's good stuff. Um, chapter two is called Luck and Risk. Uh, subtitle, Nothing is as good or bad as it seems. And he starts off with an interesting, uh, in- interesting story here. Um, you may have come across it. It's a, sort of about Bill Gates and sort of the luck associated with sort of how he got where he is. Have you, have, you, have you guys come across this story before? No. So essentially, um, Bill Gates went to this school just outside of Seattle called Lakeside School. Um, and like their science teacher in 1968 sort of was like, was like some ex-Navy guy and sort of saw that the computers were, were going to become a thing. So he petitioned the school to spend like $3,000 of their budget to get a, to, to get, to get a computer for the classroom. Um, and he says, yeah, most university graduate schools did not have a computer anywhere near as advanced as Bill Gates had access to in the eighth grade. And he couldn't get enough of it. He spent like loads of time kind of doing it. And then, and then he talks about a little quick math. In 1968, there were roughly 303 million high school age people in the world, according to the UN. 18 million of them lived in the US. 270,000 of them lived in Washington state. A little over 100,000 of them lived in the Seattle area. And only about 300 of them attended Lakeside School. Start with 303 million and with 300. One in a million high school age students attended the high school that had the combination of cash and foresight to buy a computer. Bill Gates happened to be one of them. Um, and in fact, Bill Gates has said that if, if there had been no Lakeside, there would have been no Microsoft, he told them in 2005. Um, so he talks a lot about sort of this idea of a lot of, a lot of life being very much related to luck. Uh, and then on the other side of the coin, there's the, there's the idea of risk. And he uses a, a fun example of, um, you've heard of Bill Gates and Paul Allen. Uh, but you probably haven't heard of a guy called Kent Evans, who was like the trio. He was like the Ron in there in Bill Gates, Harry and Hermione trio. Um, he got together with Paul Allen. <laughs> he got together with Paul Allen, yeah. <laughs> um, but tragically, he died in a mountaineering accident, like just as just as they left school. And he would have become like the third co-founder of Microsoft had he not just died in a mountaineering accident. Too soon, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, unacceptable. I didn't know that. Um, and so he, he, he says that for every Bill Gates, there is a Kent Evans who was just as skilled and driven, but ended up on the other side of life roulette. So I thought that was kind of fun. Um, there's an, uh, he, he, he talks as well about uh, sort of these famous people like Vanderbilt and Rockefeller, which I guess if, if you're in America are more household names. 
Uh, but they were like sort of big sort of tycoons mm, yeah. in like the 20th century or something like that. 19th century? 19th, I believe. 19th century, fair enough. So the 18, 1800s or something. Let's go with that. So these like guys like made loads of money off of like gold and coal and stuff uh, and trains. And uh, monopolizing railroads. And- <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay, I'm roughly the, right the track. Yeah. <laughs> um, but apparently uh, these guys broke the law a lot of the times and a lot of what, what they were doing was actually criminal. It's just that, you know, they they just kind of did it anyway. And so one version of history is to say, hey, look at these guys. They didn't they didn't worry about the rules. You should be like them. And, you know, had things gone slightly differently for them, they would have ended up in prison and they would have been a cautionary tale for don't break the law. Um, and again, this just kind of illustrates sort of luck and risk being opposite sides of the same coin that uh, it kind of depends on the story you tell yourself. And there's all these books now written about how Rockefeller was amazing and stuff, but he was actively breaking the law. And it's not the sort of thing that you can really feasibly model in terms of your own behavior. Yeah, I think this is a good point. I think it's, you don't even have to look to this sort of macro scale of the Bill Gates and Rockefellers of the world. I think that like in most of our lives, like if I look why I'm here right now, it's because I met Tamar because I went to this university, because I went to this school, because I kind of arbitrarily chose it at some young age. Mm. I arbitrarily chose some subjects which I would use to get into university. Like pretty much everything that is true about our life at some point is is the result of like very arbitrary decisions at some point earlier on. Yeah, man. And I think that's quite reassuring, at least when it comes to making life-changing decisions of like what job should you take? Like where should you go? Who should you, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's kind of true for everyone in a sense. Hmm. I'm actually, I actually slightly disagree with the narrative that you guys are painting around luck. Okay. I think, uh, so in, in the case of Bill Gates, um, it seems like there was an awful lot of, you know, you can call it luck involved in uh, him being at the right uh, high school to get into computers at such a young age. And I'm happy to get on board that had he not gotten into it at such a young age because of the high school thing, mm. you know, maybe you know Microsoft as we currently know it wouldn't exist. But if the event, you know, if, if you're talking about the event, Microsoft in its current state existing, I agree. Like, yeah, and yeah, I'm, I'm happy to believe Bill Gates when he says that it wouldn't exist if it weren't for uh, this this particular school. But if the event you're considering is Bill Gates being an extremely wealthy man, I think there's probably, you know, I think like the the school thing probably didn't play that much of a role. Uh, you know, if... I think basically you've got to you've got to consider like the sort of the surface area uh, from which you can capitalize on luck, and you've got to consider the the actual sort of the fan chart of possibilities. You know, for someone like Bill Gates, the fan chart of possibilities. You know, the the sort of ninety percent confidence interval or whatever of like how rich this guy is going to be is probably something from extremely high to ridiculously high, and. You know, it seems like the circumstances of, uh, you know, like the school thing, uh, were such that he he ended up landing on the ridiculously high end of the spectrum that he, you know, that that you would actually expect him to land on. Mm. Um, but you know, it's the essentially like you you have to kind of consider the service area. And for someone like Bill Gates, you know, super smart guy, you know, if he hadn't been exposed to computers in the eighth grade. You know, maybe, I don't know, he'd have read about them. Maybe in the 10th grade, he'd have, like, started visiting a local university to go and hang out with their, you know, something like that. And so, like, the the fan charge of possible outcomes for Bill Gates are likely all extremely good. The the fan charge of, you know, possible outcomes for 
you know, Mark Zuckerberg were likely all extremely good. These guys have ended up at the like, you know, at the 99.9th percentile of of the cards, uh, the cards they were dealt. But any outcome for them would have been objectively a very good outcome. Do, do you get what I mean? I get what you mean. Um, the point that Morgan, our friend Morgan is trying to make here in general is sort of wondering to what extent success is based on luck versus non-luck factors. And the point that he's making is that in a lot of the in in a lot of these high profile examples, you can pin down one particular lucky break. That's not just like obviously it's 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 hard to imagine the counterfactual. Like what would have happened if Bill Gates didn't have access to a computer until he was at university? He probably still would have done extremely well. Uh, but I th- but it's fair to say that he wouldn't be one of the richest people. He was he yeah, unlikely right. to be one of the richest yeah, people yeah, in the world yeah, yeah, yeah. had it not been a result of these of this lucky break, as it were. Um, and part you know there's a there's a nice quote from here. Um, yeah, he says, years ago, I asked economist Robert Schiller, who won the Nobel Prize in economics, what do you want to know? Uh, what, what do you know? What do you want to know about investing that we can't know? And he said the exact role of luck in successful outcomes. I love that response because no one actually thinks luck doesn't play a role in financial success. But since it's hard to quantify luck and rude to suggest that people's success is owed to it, the default stance is often to implicitly ignore luck as a factor of success. Um, and his overall message here is that... Um, you know, be careful who you praise and admire. Be careful who you look down upon and wish to avoid becoming. Or just be careful when assuming that 100% of the outcomes can be attributed to effort and decisions. Um, essentially, focus less on specific individuals and case studies and more on broad patterns is kind of the point behind the stories in this chapter. I can get on board with that. Cool. So moving on. Uh, chapter three is called Never Enough. And I thought this was very interesting because he tells a lot of interesting stories about people who see me, who had like sort of loads and loads and loads of money, sort of tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars and wanted to chase even more money and started doing illegal things to chase that more money. And the things that I wrote down was that uh, so that it's, it, it's nonsensical to risk what you have and need for what you don't have and don't need. And he says that, uh, that I, I thought that was a nice turn of phrase where he says this is as obvious as it is, uh, as, as it, uh, the, the, this is as obvious as it is ignored by people and so oh another thing that he that he he, he kind of talks about is kind of the the social comparison game and talking about how well it's it's kind of like a battle that can never be won the only way to win is to exit as soon as you enter um and there was, oh the this was from an from an another from a story that he tells of when he visited like a las vegas casino and he asked the casino so the guy at the door like you know what did the what do the people who win in the casino have in common and he says that the only people who win are the ones who exit as soon as they enter. Uh, and he kind of says that this is similar to the sort of social comparison game in that all these people who want more money are doing it because they want more social status. But that is a, that's a game that you can never win. Good stuff. Yeah. He says, uh, reputation, freedom, happiness, family and friends. These are all valuable. Recognize your point of enough where you're at risk of risking these important things for more money or more status. I thought that was like, yeah, that's good. It's a nice way of putting it. Then there's a paragraph. Then, then there's a whole chapter about compounding. Um, so, Tamil, what is compounding <laughs> for the people who are listening? How would you explain it? Hmm. Let me have a think about that. How would, how would you give me a funny look, Mac? Why don't you explain it? <laughs> this is how your sales calls go. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, sure. I would say compounding is the process by which uh, an initial lump sum becomes 
extortionately large through continual application of like a small percentage growth through it. So starting with $100, if you consider 1% uh, growth in that year on year or month on month, in the initial stages, you're looking at fairly small gains of a dollar, a dollar fifty, so one per year. Uh, but as that grows and grows, the compounding effect takes over and the, the growth each month or each year becomes larger and larger. Yeah, that's the one. Um, and he kind of starts off this example by asking how ice ages, how uh, ice ages are formed, and turns out like people who have studied the formation of ice ages say that it's actually just because you know the Earth, the Earth's tilt on its own axis changes ever so slightly, which means a little bit of the planet is ever so slightly closer to the sun. But that means that if and that means means that another bit is ever so slightly further away from the sun, and so this happens over a very long period of time, and eventually the snow from the mountains that happens in one winter doesn't fully melt. And this, therefore, you know, there's like a one, one, one millimeter layer of snow, but then the next year it kind of goes a bit more, a bit more, a bit more, a bit more, a bit more until the point where you have an ice age where life on the planet becomes uninhabitable. Um, and his point behind this cute story is that uh, you don't need tremendous force for tremendous results. You just need compounding and a very long period of time. And um, I thought that was a good, a good calculation he did here. So at the time of writing, Warren Buffett's net worth was 84 billion. Um, he started investing at the age of like 10 and he has continued investing beyond the age of 65, however old he is. He's like his 80s or something now. Yeah, sure. What's to that effect? Um, now he says, okay, now let's think about the scenario if uh, Warren Buffett had a more kind of normal career trajectory. Let's say um, he had 25,000 pounds aged 30 and he got exactly the same returns that he's been getting because of his like acumen as an investor and stuff. And he stopped investing when he was 60 because he was like, I'm going to retire now. What do you think his net worth would be if he were investing over that time horizon instead of from the age of 10 to the age of 80? What is his returns? Uh, it doesn't matter. Oh, that ruins <laughs> as, the fun. Assume, as, <laughs> assuming there are, I, I think he's, I think he's consistently beating the market. So shall we say 10%? Good maths. 10% over how many years? 30 yeah 30 i've actually long thought that someone should make like a little game just like a really simple website game where you yeah. have to like get you know you have like three seconds to to guess basically a compound <laughs> yeah. compound growth results <laughs> just to like develop your intuition for compound growth you know like that game would go viral it, it would definitely go viral on tech twitter and hacker news and stuff oh. if someone makes it. so you should make this on the plane <laughs> <laughs> mate that's actually not a bad idea <laughs> oh, that, that would be quite fun anyway i'll put you out of your misery so warren buffett's current net worth the net worth is 84 billion yeah he started investing at like age 10 and hasn't stopped at the age of 80 if he had invested between the age of 30 and 60 with exactly the same returns his net worth would be 11.4 million yeah that's insane <laughs> starting young <laughs> yeah. exactly you've got to start investing when you're young man um and then morgan says there are over 2,000 books written about warren buffett's investing success none of them are titled this guy's been investing for three quarters of a century, <laughs> even though that is the main reason why he's famous and successful. And it just sort of his, uh, this is another point that he talks about throughout the book that when it comes to investing and when it comes to, when it comes to basically anything, like the amount of time that you are playing the game is by far the biggest factor that determines whether you'll be successful at it or not. And so when it comes to things like, you know, uh, you, what the, the reasonable investor does, what the reasonable investor does is that they, maximize their own personal chances of staying in the game for the longest time so for example um you guys know that when you when you're investing in the stock market the stock market always goes up over the long term but there are kind of rocky periods along the way and for example if you panicked in 2008 in the financial crisis and you started to sell your stocks you'd be pretty 
pretty sort of you'd be pretty bad off essentially because you're selling your stocks when the prices are low but if you'd held on then you'd have sort of it would have gone back to normal and then you'd have sort of made loads and loads and loads of money and there, there was like a, an interesting stat here that just sort of whether or not you sold in just like 11 days in 2008 that determines basically your entire financial life and if you can just hold on during those periods of uncertainty or those periods where the stock market is going down then chances are you're going to absolutely kill it in the long term. And so what the reasonable investor does is that they make sure that they can weather these huge and emotionally unsettling and crucially unpredictable events because no one could have really predicted the 2008 crash. No one could have really predicted the 2001 crash. No one could have predicted coronavirus. Tell, tell that to Alan Greenspan. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, uh, I, I think he, uh, you know, predicted the 2008 crash <laughs> i mean there were there were there were plenty of people around at that time i'm sure someone <laughs> predicted it was going to be a crash and it happened to get it right um but his point is that yeah basically the longer you can stay in the game the more likely you've got for a a successful outcome further down the line happy so far yeah i'm happy i agree with that i try to check my vanguard ISO as little as possible sometimes <laughs> sometimes sometimes forget the password <laughs> that's one way of staying in the game <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I recently logged into my Coinbase, my uh, my cryptocurrency account after <laughs> after absolutely ages. I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I'm glad I stayed in the game. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I'm like break even overall. I, I think I must be. I must be just above break even. Nice. I'm still very net negative on, on why. The yeah, I, I'm still baffled as to why you decide to sell sell so much when things were down because we were buying the house. Oh, really? I, need, I need money for a deposit because, because you were saying that you're not going to sell. <laughs> Therefore, I had to take the hit. One of us had to think long term, mate. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, chapter number five is called getting uh, is called getting wealthy versus staying wealthy. Uh, and he says there are plenty of ways to get wealthy, but only two ways of staying wealthy, a combination of frugality and paranoia. He says, if I had to summarize money success in a single word, in a single word, it is survival. Uh and then sort of the, the notes I've written are that getting money and keeping money are two entirely different skills. To get money, i.e. to get wealthy, it involves luck and skill and putting yourself out there and taking risks. Uh, but to keep money requires frugality. It requires recognition of the role that luck played in your wealth, recognition that it may not continue forever, and appreciating this idea of when you have enough. And apparently the Sequoia, which is this like big investing firm, he's like spoken to their CEO or something. Um, about and apparently they've done like a really good job of being like a huge investing firm for a very very long time yeah they're like the top sort of uh, vc firm and the oldest in the game basically oh okay yeah and they basically sort of invented vc as an industry oh cool um but apparently what the ceo says is that we're always afraid like every year we're afraid we're going to go out of business the next year and therefore we never rest on our, rest on our laurels assuming that past past growth is an indicator of future growth yeah or that because we're big then we can afford to sort of take off of the accelerator as it were um yeah if uh their story is actually really interesting there's a good podcast called acquired that did uh, a double episode about uh sequoia capital uh it's really really interesting uh we'll try and link in the show notes if we remember nice and then we have a cheeky quote from a taleb which is that having an edge and survival are two different skills but the first requires the second you need to avoid ruin at all costs <laughs> Um, and there were a few points that I write down here. So number one, more than I want big returns, I want to be financially unbreakable. And if 
Uh, and if I'm unbreakable, I'll probably get the biggest returns because I'll be able to stick around for long enough for compounding to work wonders. Unbreakable meaning not n- not having to take my money out of the stock market, essentially. Um, number two, planning is important, but the most important part of every plan is planning for when the plan doesn't go according to plan. Um, room for error, i.e. margin of safety, is underappreciated. For example, having a frugal budget, flexible thinking, and a very loose time frame. Basically, living happily within a wide range of outcomes. Um and then we've got, so, so if, you, if you're conservative, that means you're avoiding a certain level of risk. But if you have a margin of safety, then you're raising the odds of success at a given level of risk by increasing your chances of survival. The higher your margin of safety, the lower your edge needs to be for a favorable outcome. And by edge, it's sort of, sort of all of the things when it comes to investing, it's like how, how essentially how good of an investor you are, how high your rate of return is. Um, but again, it's sort of just reiterating his point that the longer you can just stick in the game, the more that the higher your odds of a, a favorable outcome. And this kind of reminded me of uh, something that MKBHD, the YouTuber, famously said. And I, I think it was, he was interviewed on, on the Y Combinator podcast. And they asked him what the secret to his success is. And he was like, well, if you just pick something and do it for 10 years, chances are you'll probably be successful at it. Uh, and I think about that a lot when it comes to sort of every, everything that I do, that if I, if I just pick something and stick with it for 10 years, it's, it, it's, it's hard to imagine a world in which it won't be successful. Yeah. Um, he says the swelled head is an expensive disease um what does that mean oh as in like as you get too big for your boots and stuff. oh okay right that, that that causes ruin um yeah this was interesting for me because okay so when it comes to money i feel like i've hit my point of enough in that i don't need a slash want any more money to be happy and yet i still feel this uh, sort of prior to prior to reading this i still felt like a real sense of like yeah but my, all, of, all of my wealth is built on kind of this the the youtube thing and you know anything could happen to that or you know maybe skillshare will go out of business or, or, or all, of, all of these different things which makes me feel very risk averse and may, makes me want to do whatever i can to hedge against these kind of unlikely events happening and i've always kind of felt bad about it until i read this this chapter in the book uh where he talks about how once you're wealthy, however you want to define that, and staying wealthy is about being paranoid and about sort of mitigating risk as much as possible because making more money in that situation is not actually going to make you happier. But losing your money in that situation, which is very possible, is definitely going to make you unhappier. And so you really want to sort of hedge against that risk as much as possible. If you, I'm curious to know, so if you worked out that you needed X pounds per year to, to have enough and you, you had that amount times 40 or 50 or whatever it, it needs for the rest of your life, would you, would you feel okay then? Or would you still like feel the urge to make more money, even if you had enough to last the rest of your life? I probably still feel the urge to make more money because I would I wouldn't be sure a of uncertain events in the future that I can't possibly predict. So just having having more money is is generally a hedge against uncertainty, and b because I'm not sure how my future preferences will change, especially given that I want to get married and have kids someday. Um, and you want them to start investing early. <laughs> yeah, I want them to start investing at the age of eight. <laughs> Try and beat Warren Buffett. As in, as in game. Um, yeah, hmm. that is a good question. That, that, that's that's something I often think about. It's like if if I actually had unlimited money, what what would I change about my behavior? Yeah, well, not necessarily unlimited, but yeah. you, you knew you had enough to support uh, a family and for any like reasonable, unreasonable like expenses that might might come up in your life. You didn't have to worry about that. Would you? Would you still keep? trying to earn at the same rate or would it change your opinion i feel like when you get to a certain point okay so let's brainstorm this shall we say you want a hundred hundred thousand pounds a year and you're going to be alive for the next 50 years 
So what's 50 times 100,000? That's 50 million. No, like five that's, that, that, that's 5 million. Yeah. So if I had 5 million in the bank and it, it wasn't depreciating in interest, would I suddenly think, great, I don't need to ever make money ever again? Is, yeah. that, is that what you're asking? Yeah. Would you, would you do anything that like, you wouldn't do if money was no object? Um, would, you, would you kind of go off into just spend the day walking around or would you, would you still pursue things that were money generating? I probably still would pursue things that are money generating. But then, but then by that, at, at that point, I feel like making money would just be kind of a fun side hobby. And, and given that, loosely I care about my impact on the world. Making money is a good way to have impact on the world. When you say making money is a fun side hobby, do you mean that literally? Like, is, is the point of it money? Is that like some quote-unquote currency for like value that you're creating or, or is the money just like irrelevant? I think making money is, is itself a hobby because I think, for, like, for example, if I, were to, if I were to become like an artist or something and be like, hey, you know, I've always wanted to take art lessons. I'm going to take art lessons and, and learn how to paint and stuff. I think I would have more fun learning how to paint and then also posting my work on Instagram and also trying to sell prints than just learning how to paint and having my, my artwork in my studio. Because I, I, I think, at, at least for me, adding a monetization layer to stuff that I'm interested in makes it more fun. And I would probably continue doing that. Is that because it, it makes it easier for you to kind of assess the value that you're adding? Like, you see, if people are willing to pay for your prints, like, this is some kind of validation or, or like positive feedback? Or, or is that not the idea? Part, partly it's that, but it's also just, it's also just like points in a video game. Um, in that it's it's an inherently rewarding thing. <laughs> okay. I guess I'm kind of curious yeah. why those points are, are dollars or pounds and why they're not like the number of people who, who follow your art channel or, or whatever that is. Oh, it's that as well, yeah. Okay. Like there's these different metrics in, in different regards and it's it's all, like I, 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 I consider them all points in a game, um, except that money is a specific point, is a, is a has has more intrinsic value than all the others because of the, well, the fact that it's money. Even in the scenario where you, you have enough money for the rest of your life, even in even in that scenario, at the, at that point, money becomes a points points in a game that you can cash in to have impact on the world. So, for example, as a, as a very kind of trivial example, two thousand dollars it takes to save a life with the Against Malaria Foundation. Uh, it, it makes sense to make more money purely for the purposes of donating it in the, in that context. Okay, yeah, that sounds fair. Um, at least that's what my current thinking on it. If I ever have five million in the bank, I'll, I'll let you know my answer to that. <laughs> what about you? What do you? What do you think you'd do if you had five million in the bank, and you could guarantee yourself a hundred thousand a year salary for the next fifty years, uh, or rather, let, let's call it eight million for so the next eighty years? <laughs> I think it's very unlikely I would spend any of my time doing anything that was was money generating. Really? Yeah. Okay. I, I guess I'm coming from a slightly different angle than that. Like most of my career, I, I've worked for organisations, and like, yes. I'm obviously not going to go and work like. 40 even 20 10 hours a week i've got five million in the bank okay um what would you do instead i would i would i would spend time running cycling i would go like walking in forests and that kind of stuff okay uh but certainly nothing that like really even had any chance of being revenue generating (laughs) (laughs) would would you do any writing on the internet uh if it was stuff that i felt like like so i write a little bit and there's like in my mind two very clear categories of like i'm writing this because i just want to like get it out there and like off my mind off my chest okay. and then there's stuff like m- maybe i'm kind of getting it out there because um i want to get it off my chest but also like someone might see this who might like want to work with me and it might like okay. contribute to my career in some way which maybe has like some small long-term revenue mm-hmm. value sure. like the second type like no chance i'm writing that kind of stuff okay so, <laughs> so, so you'd only write the stuff that you're interested in yeah, and if I am generally interested in it, okay. and that's the only reason for it. Would you, would, would you hypothetically be interested in writing a book? 
do you, uh, do you need some chapters helping us? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't officially announced it. <laughs> um, but, like, but, but like, for example, if you were interested in writing a book uh, and you were, you know, to, to write a book about a subject you were genuinely interested in. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all for trying to set long-term goals. Yeah. If, if it's something that takes a year or five years or 10 years mm-hmm. and, and working towards those. Yeah. And if I thought that a goal of writing a book was like one of the most challenging long-term goals I could set, then yeah, then yeah definitely. Wait, I don't get this whole thing. Like, it seems like that's a bit backwards. Like, why would you be interested in writing a book? Surely you would first, you know, it's kind of the other way around. You find something to say and then you decide that, okay, a book is the best way to put this out in the world rather than I want to write a book. Let's figure out, all right, let's figure out what book I can write. No? I mean, so I'm thinking of a sports analogy in my head, which is that, like, uh, if I want to, like, be this good a runner, I'll, I'll spend five years training and running. It's not like I just have this energy and then I need to, like, find some output for it and I'll go running. Like, you, you can kind of, you can work backwards. Hmm, okay. I don't know. I think the book thing is still kind of dodgy. I think the running thing... Uh, we were talking about this, actually. We were talking about exactly this, like, two episodes ago. What, the challenge? <laughs> yeah, and I think I actually mentioned you, Mac, about how you like to do Ironmans and things like that. And I think, and, we and were... I, think I mentioned that you like to do it purely because, of, because it's challenging. Or, or rather, the, that the fact that it's a challenge is a, a, a significant part of why you do it. Uh, yeah, it, it's partly a challenge. It's partially this kind of purely instrumental thing. Like, I would like to be the person who, like, trains seven days a week and, like, gets up early and, and like, does that stuff. And I know that one way to force myself to do that is to set myself this goal of like, right, in a year, in this day, I'm going to have this race. And in order to like get to the point where I can do that race, I need to do all this prep work in the same way that like you could set yourself the goal, the kind of end focus goal of I'm going to write a book. And you know, the implication of that is that I'm going to have to like sit in front of a desk and write for six months, a year. So I think it's fine to work from the end backwards to the front in that sense. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I guess if there's some semblance of a front of like, you kind of have something all right whatever uh, yeah i don't think there's any point in dwelling on the book thing mm. yeah i can get on board with this so the the reason i brought up the, the, the book slash writing thing is because i think i feel like that's the difference between the work that i do and the work that you do and that the work that i do feel is is more like just talking about stuff i'm interested in and putting on the internet uh and i was trying to get you to say that you probably like even if you had unlimited money you probably would still be interested in talking about things you're interested in on the internet in some capacity and just like sharing your ideas with the world, for example. Honestly, man, no, <laughs> I really wouldn't. Okay. I, just, I think now that you put it that way, I think yeah. so much of my reason for, for doing that kind of stuff is in some very long-term capacity okay. rooted back to money, even if I don't see that mm. up front. Okay. Do you enjoy, enjoy teaching? Uh, I enjoy teaching. I don't really enjoy kids that much. <laughs> What? <laughs> okay, no, no, that, 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 that's a topic for another time. Okay, well, I, I, I like them to have their own autonomy and that not to involve me. <laughs> okay, but like hypothetically, let's say you were, I don't know, sort of, you, you had your eight, eight to 10 million in the bank, you, you had your money situation sorted. Would you not find it fun to sort of be a, a chilling university and sort of do a lecture once a week or supervise some kids for like a tutorial here and there? oh yeah yeah sure if that was on like a topic or something i found interesting then okay yeah yeah, yeah. assuming it's stuff yeah it's, yeah, it's, yeah it's subjects that you that you enjoy okay do you can you can you see yourself enjoying doing the same thing at scale by i don't know talking about it on podcasts or writing a blog or even you know dare i say making making videos on the internet sure i think there's some kind of uh critical mass or like some inflection point at yeah. which point 
like before that point, it's a bit of an uphill slog in terms yeah. of trying to build an audience. Okay. And then once you hit that point, it, it is more like, I guess, teaching yeah. teaching class when you have a captive audience of people who, who will listen. Mm. Um, but I think that before that point, it's a different experience. Okay, fair dues. Yeah. Cool. All right. So that's the end of part one of this episode covering the psychology of money. We are going to be doing a part two episode next week where we talk more about these uh, situations. So thank you very much for listening so far. And... We'll see you hopefully next week. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on the Apple Podcasts website if you're not using an iPhone. There's a link in the show notes. If you've got any thoughts on this episode or any ideas for new podcast topics, we'd love to get an audio message from you with your conundrum, question, or just anything that we could discuss. Yeah, if you're up for having your voice played on the podcast and your question being the springboard for our discussion, email us an audio file mp3 or voice note to hi at notoverthinking.com. If you've got thoughts but you'd rather not have your voice played publicly, that's fine as well. Tweet or DM us at N Overthinking on Twitter, please. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.